0: Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entre Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Greg Kochanowski, welcome to Entre Architect Podcast.
1: Hi Mark, thank you so much for um, for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to
0: you. I'm excited about it too. This is going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, Greg is a partner and design principal at GGA Plus in Pasadena, California and founder of The Wild, a nonprofit research lab focusing on the impacts of the climate crisis on in urban environments. Uh, with over 25 years of experience as an award-winning architect, landscape architect, educator, and author, Greg brings a wealth of knowledge and a holistic design philosophy to his practice. Um, that's a really brief intro, Greg. Just to sort of give, some, give our listeners a little idea of who you are, um, because I'd like to ask you know, ask you where you've come from, what's your origin story. So go back to where you discovered your passion for architecture and, you know, maybe talk about who or what inspired you to become an architect and share that story to where you are today.
1: Thanks so much. Um, Yeah. You know, I didn't know I wanted to be an architect. (laughs) Um, I totally fell into it. Uh, I was, I was the kid who loved art, loved drawing, um, loved math but everybody associates math with architecture but i never really did uh but anyway i um i had no idea what i wanted to do when i got out of high school zero and i went to art school actually um because that's all i knew how to do and while i was there as um i was my stepfather is a sort of a renaissance man sort of a contractor in every sense of the word um, can kind of do anything with regard to building and i just became fascinated by that and thought okay well maybe that's something i can do i could i was interested in building maybe whatever just creating right and so um went and got a degree in structural engineering because i thought well that's what architects do right or you that's kind of what you would do and i realized what i when i was there that there was no creative outlet in my traditional sense and so then I, I started slowly learning what architects might be um, or what, what a career might that, what, what a career might look like in the built environment and um, went and got an undergrad degree in architecture at Temple and then left and um, decided to take a little bit of a break. Uh, and I mean, Temple was an inspiring place for me because it, it showed me not only it's about design, but it's about ideas. And that architecture is really about um, sort of interpreting the world in which we live and so and the people that occupy these places and their cultures and everything like that. So that really broadened in my understanding. But when I got out of undergrad, I worked for a sole proprietor over his garage drawing houses in Western Massachusetts. And um, it was like the best experience ever because I got to do everything. Um, it was all hand drawing at that time. We had electric erasers, and we had drew on mylar, and it was fantastic. Um, I
0: remember those days.
1: It was just—I still miss it. I still miss the smell of like burning erasers. In the, in the <laughs> yep. I know that
0: smell immediately. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, um, and then and then took another job at a, at a sort of middle-sized, more corporate-y firm that did more commercial kind of work, and then decided, you know, I really want to go. I really want to go back and explore ideas. Um, and so then went to grad school at UCLA, came out West because it was totally different from Boston, which is where I grew up. So I grew up mostly on the East coast, um, and coming out to the West coast scared the heck out of me. Um, when I first visited the school and I thought, you know what, being scared is a little good. It's something totally new for me and it will make me grow in different ways that I didn't know I could grow in. So I hated LA the first year I was here. And, um, and I think mostly because it's so different. I miss my family and everything. But now um, I can't imagine being anywhere else. And uh, partly what I really fell in love with and what I fell in love with it at grad school was um, if you're not aware of LA, if you've ever been to LA, everybody thinks of traffic, <laughs> you know, traffic and celebrities. Um, but it's really this... Um, it's one of the most authentic kind of mixing pots, melting pots that exist in the United States um, with really deep culture and really deep history of people and landscape. And we have real wildness and wilderness that just cuts right through the city with regard to the Santa Monica Mountains and the Hollywood Hills and the San Gabriel Mountains. And so that juxtaposition of a kind of a really one of the largest metropolitan centers in the world with this also kind of um, real sort of uh, sort of wildness wildlands that exist right there that you can escape from in like literally five minutes go from the city to those literally within five to ten minutes is was really inspiring for me and just made me think of an, an urbanism and cities in a totally different way and it and it it um, it really drew out my passion in landscape, which I never knew I had. And so um, after grad school, I you know I took some jobs again. I took another job with a sole proprietor working out of his garage. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I just I mean like the small firm was like an immediate, you know it was just myself and this other guy. And we were fortunate enough to be part of a competition for Staten Island to rethink um, Fresh Guild landfill. And so that also sort of bore out this other passion in landscape. And so that's carried to the current day where I then was working at um, a few other firms, but the most significantly was Rios before GGA um, for about 14 years in which it is a landscape and architecture firm. And so I really pursued my passions there and learned a lot. And now I've taken that to GGA as design principal. I've only been there for about seven months now. We're in early part of 2022. And um, uh, and uh, and really thinking through um, what it means to practice with this, these ideas and bringing that to the firm and expanding upon what we've already done, which is a very human-centered practice focused on um, disadvantaged communities really thinking of architecture as a social act um, and thinking through kind of a holistic form of practice where we really embrace the whole person and the whole site and the whole environment. And so that's kind of where we're kind of going. So um, really excited of, of what's to come and and, uh, and and working with some really wonderful people and wonderful clients. So that's kind of where I am right now.
0: And you're relatively new at GGA, right?
1: Yeah, it just, uh, just started last June. Um, and it's, uh, like I said, it's, a, it's a, it's a firm we're, we're relatively small, you know, we're, we're comparatively in LA, there's a lot of different small firms. There's, it's different than a metropolitan Chicago or New York, which is dominated by the sort of larger, um, sort of institutional firms. Um, we have those here too, but it's a lot of small startup firms. And so. For LA, we're actually a good size for one of those firms. We're about 30 to 8 to 40 people somewhere in there. Um, but we um, we we work across, like I said, affordable housing, transitional housing, permanent supportive housing for homeless. A lot of homeless and social issues, uh, uh, dealing with trauma informed design, which is a really interesting way of thinking through the whole person and people who have gone through enormous amounts of trauma. Um, uh, either through homelessness or abuse, either uh, sort of dependency or physical abuse, and ways in which architecture and design can help that healing process. And uh, really thinking of design in that way, uh, which is, I think, uh, going back to the sort of the um, architecture as a social act of the 1970s, 1960s, 1950s, really engaging the, the politics architecture engaging that realm it's gone it went away from that for so long it's kind of embraced capitalism for so long and I think that I was interested in going back to that um, or engaging with that and so um, we do that in schools we do a lot of so again in the same mindset um, doing a lot of education work and a lot of civic work so working in the public realm um, and working with um, people in need is what we're about and um, we're really passionate about what we do and um, yeah it's exciting to be a part of that.
0: So, so you were mentioning earlier that um, your approach to architecture is is a holistic approach, um, and it, and it sounds like GGA is aligned with that. What what does that type of practice look like? I and mean, when you when you take on a new project, um, what does it mean to have a holistic approach?
1: So, it might mean different things for different yeah. people, uh, but what it means for us is um, is that I mean, there are certain things in terms of. Uh, You want to be part of your site you want to be anchored to your context those are all things that maybe every architect or a lot of architects would want to do um but what we also see is that um architecture is inherently a collaborative act act and really thinking through um uh providing agency and giving agency to everybody who's involved in the project that everybody who comes to a project has expertise of some form to provide now that might not be technical expertise. That might be cultural expertise. It might be um, uh, it might be someone who's deep in the community. It might be somebody who's um, sort of an ecologist who really understands the environment. And and so there's a process. What I'm saying is that there's a process associated with holistic design. That it's not just uh, make sure we check a bunch of boxes that we've done this and we've done that we've done that, but through the integration of different ways of thinking, we, pr- we, we create a kind of a uh, solution, quote unquote, or a project that fulfills the kind of the needs of a broad constituency. And that, that constituency might, might be people, it might be environment, the environment as a sort of constitu- you know, abstract constituent in the process, um, as well as owners and engineers and contractors, and sort of a wide gamut, but giving real agency to those people. And that level of inclusiveness and thinking of diversity, not again, as a kind of affirmative action, but a real leveraging of diversity um, is something that we're really interested in. And that's something that we see as holistic design, thinking through sustainability through economic means, not just environmental means or cultural sustainability. So these kinds of terms, I think, are have typically been pigeonholed or into certain categories. And that makes sense, right? Because it helps you to understand them right. and learn about them. But it also, if you broaden them just slightly, it helps you to kind of create these really well-rounded projects um, and relationships.
0: One of the things that I mentioned in your bio is that you're the founder of The Wild, which is a nonprofit research lab. Focusing on the impacts of the climate crisis in urban environments, um, L.A. urban environment, climate crisis for sure. Yeah, uh, every summer we're seeing major wildfires happening, and it's happening more and more. Right, it's almost becoming the wildfire season that you're expecting it to happen. Um, how and why did you start that that organization?
1: Yeah, uh, it so you know, I've lived in, so I moved to LA in 97 and, uh, to go to grad school, as I said. So I, I was, and at that time I actually moved to LA in, uh, at 97, when we moved, it was, um, a La Ni- uh, El Nino year, which was torrential downpours. I mean, rain, like I had never seen. And what came from that was then de- mud flow and debris right. flow by closing the PCH. Right. So over the course of So that sort of woke me up like, whoa, this is a place that I had not experienced before. And, you know, just going to school and working and everything, every year you hear the fires, the rains come, the debris flow comes, right? And so it's the same story every year. It's almost uncanny. And at that time, around 2007, um, MoMA put out a publication about sea level rise called Rising Currents. And it was the first time designers had actually engaged with the issues of climate change in a serious way. Um, And I saw that and was super inspired by it and just let it mull for a while. But I was wondering, like, why is nobody talking about what we go through here in California? Nobody's talking about fires from a design standpoint. And so around um, 2012, 2013, somewhere around that, I started thinking through it more deeply and, um, did some speculative design work on debris flows. And it just sort of spiraled into um, having a passion for this subject and finding an opportunity. There was an opportunity here. There was a lane here that nobody else was talking about that seemed to really um, connect with this city that I lived in and my family lives in and with the much broader global issues that are going on right now. And so that confluence maybe and also connected my passions of landscape and architecture and urbanism like beautifully. So um, I was studying that and working on that and uh, did an education panel actually ASLA which is the National Landscape Association in October of 2018 on this is my first time out there talking about wildfires and then in November of 2018 we lost our home in Woolsey fire. So it... It became this like conflation of um, living the research kind so of. So
0: your interest came first. Yeah. And then the fire hit you personally.
1: Exactly, and you're like, but it's an it was a very uh, fascinating thing that happened, which was before I was kind of studying this thing at wildfires at like fifty thousand feet. You know, looking at big history of fire patterns and you know all this stuff. Um, it was relatively abstract. And when that happened, you know, happened to us personally, all of a sudden you, it, you really understood the human toll that it takes. And, and we, we, li- we actually don't live like on a single family lot somewhere. We live par- as part of a cooperative here in the Santa Monica Mountains. And so we have 215 other homes here, of which 110 were lost. And so what it showed me um, was the value of community and the value of social infrastructure and the impact that fires have on real people and that real solutions can really come out of smaller actions, grassroots actions, you know, groundswell kinds of things. In addition to top-down planning, there's still that too. So that made me think, you know, I'm going to start my own organization. I'm going to start a nonprofit and try and do some of this work through that and take it seriously. And so that's what's kind of come from it. Um, I went and started it. And um, this book, which happens to be the same title <laughs> as the organization. Kind the, of wild. the book it. is we called have, The Wild. The book is called The Wild and the organization is called The Wild. There's a new book coming called Wildlands in the Expanded Field. Um which is going to really elaborate on it, but um, but that 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 sort of sparked it all into um, like real action and um, and and focusing on a balance between research, education, and community engagement. Um, so kind of fusing all those three aspects together um, was something that I mean I'm the only person who's a part of it, so it's a small organization. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, I'm doing what I can to try and, you know, keep the, keep the mission alive.
0: Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Do you have ideas about how to improve the architecture profession? I know you do. If you're listening to this podcast, you definitely have ideas about how to improve our profession. NCARB wants to hear from you. Their ongoing analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Share your experiences and insights from working in architecture and tell NCARB what you wish they would do better. This is your opportunity to let NCARB know what you wish they would do better. Your feedback will help guide changes to the national experience and examination programs for architects, and impact what being a licensed architect could look like. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org/aop. That's ncarb.org/aop. Ncarb.org/aop. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process, 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Try FreshBooks. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It's free. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect. FreshBooks.com slash architect. Get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with your 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by Arcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, aka CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at arcat.com slash podcast. That's arcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed, every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you atre architect community so so what what does the organization do what what is the why did you launch the wild and what's what's your objective
1: well the objective is primarily to again provide a um a a a, a resource and um for education first and foremost but also a resource for forward thinking and connection around this for communities so what I have done is have been involved in um, mostly right now because it's relatively early in its infancy. It's about you know three years old or so, two or three years old. So it's quite young. Um, but uh, getting grants to then do outreach and education with communities, engaging with fire safe councils and other organizations that are out there that are on the ground that may have more of a research um, meaning more of a um, scientific approach to it or a policy based approach to it and that what I help bring to that is visioning and um, and helping them think about what they could do with that. Uh, as well as I'm um, working with, um, well hope to be working with, but engaged with the Southern San Gabriel Valley Council of Governments, um, which is a kind of a clearinghouse for all these like, uh, I believe it's 32 cities that sit along the base of the San Gabriel mountains who are undergoing wildfire on a constant basis. And so working with that organization, getting in touch with smaller cities um, that each and in, each individually has their own problems and trying to um, work both at a kind of broader education level and then a local level to find solutions for them. A lot of this is about education. Um, a lot of that is just having conversations and um, showing people both what's possible, but also that these are, as you mentioned earlier, like fires existed in l a before l a existed. Right. right They're you part know? of
0: the natural process, right?
1: Right. It's these are landscapes that are meant to burn, and they've burned for millennia. And um, what we're finding is both climate the climate crisis has exacerbated that, but also that through housing policy or lack of housing policy, and affordable housing, a kind of a housing crisis, a kind of cultural economic crisis, people have pushed hard into these areas. And through the juxtaposition of development and people, more and more in these wildlands, fire then gets exacerbated and really burns more. So it's that, um, you know, how do you stop that? I don't know if you do. Uh, there's lots of questions like if communities burn down, should they be able to re rebuild um, like ours? And we rebuilt. And so those are very hard political and economic and cultural questions that you have that um, you talk about where, where would people go in L.A. if they can't. If I live here because I can afford to live here in L.A. I couldn't live somewhere else in L.A. It's too expensive for me. So where else would I go? And so there's an equity issue with all of this, too. And uh, so it's complicated, but I think that's what makes it really rich and um, sort of fertile territory to talk about is that it's not just about ecology, it's not just about science or policy, it's about people and people's lives and um, then the lives of wilderness and wildlife and everything else. So it gets back to this sort of, as we talk about like climate, the climate crisis, architects aren't gonna solve it, landscape architects aren't gonna solve it, mayors, governors, presidents aren't gonna solve it. It's gonna take a collective holistic uh, attitude and process to really get at these issues because they are broad and and multivalent.
0: Yeah. So. so it sounds like the the wild is really an opportunity provides an opportunity to to learn, right? So it's a place where people can learn about what is causing this and and um, and and it gives a place for the dialogue to happen, right? To have the conversations to happen in order for people to not only learn but to to figure out some solutions to either uh, live with fires or you know eliminate the fires or reduce the fires um, from it, from an architect's point of view, right? You're list, you're talking to thousands of architects right now. What can we do um, to you know if if we're in a region where things like this are happening? Um, If not, we're probably in a region where other things are happening. Uh, What can we do as architects to, you know, either contribute to the conversation or help solve the problems?
1: So we are trained as, um, I think we as architects are uniquely trained and I would lump landscape architects into that a little bit, you know, but I would say we're uniquely trained to address these issues and provide our skill sets to these problems, and so you have scientists, you have policymakers, um, you have communities who don't, who don't have. And not I'm not disparaging. It's just that there's a training that we go through, and there's a way in which we're trained to synthesize information, take complex information, and synthesize it and push it back out into a kind of a vision. I'm not saying a design, but even just a. Um, uh, a way of representing the material that helps show possibilities within it. And so I think, as small firm architects or architects in general, um, there's a lot of, as I was saying earlier, um, a lot of the real solutions I think are going to happen at the ground level. It's communities organizing to create um, solutions for themselves, whether those are small or large to help withstand the changes that are coming on by climate. And there's a few examples of, of this, that um, there, there are fire here in LA, and I, we can talk about flooding too, because I think it's equally as appropriate for flooding as well. But for LA, in um, here, there's, there's fire safe councils and there's fire adapted communities. And what these are like small groups of people who live in a certain locale, who come together because they know they're in danger. And we as architects, and what I'm trying to do is engage with those communities. Say, here are some things you can do. Here are some things you can help. I can help you with um, home hardening. How do you harden your home against fire? How do you think through materials? How do you think through defensible space? Um, How do you think about helping you to um, think through community organization um, to to understand how to maintain and also and maybe in the future expand or design your community um, to uh, be uh, sort of sustainable and responsive to the changes that we're seeing. There's a story out of um, and the reason I go to the sort of grassroots part of this is that you know there's a story out of Katrina where um, there are two communities and one community. Um, was very tight-knit and um, had great social connections, and um, the other was not so tight-knit. It was more transient-based, et cetera. And they both received equal amounts of funding. One has since disappeared and the other has stayed, right? So I think think our role within that, I say that because I think there's a role for architects to engage in those communities and help strengthen them, help rally people around ideas, help rally people around um, just talking, and communicating, and with our visual language and with our skill sets at talking to tons of people all the time, um, we have an ability to bring those people together and then help them organize and help them withstand some of these challenges that they face. Even if there's not anything ultimately that we build or that we, you know, design, because it's the strength and bonds of those communities too that help to also foster. Um, uh, of resilience so i don't know if that answers your question but that's yeah there's a lot of things you can do Um, it
0: it's very interesting as you're as you're explaining that it 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 we don't have to be experts either right we don't have to be i don't need to be an expert in in wildfires to leverage my skills as an architect as a facilitator as a leader to come into a community and say hey i'm 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 uniquely skilled at being able to facilitate these conversations. Let's have some conversations and create some sort of uh, forum where that can happen. So essentially just step up and lead um, and then then do what needs to be done from that point forward. Learn what from, you know, from the community could, you know, find resources to bring to the community just to have that conversation. Like you said, Greg, one community tight knit they have a communication process, a system, right, just naturally because they're a tight-knit community, another community, they don't know one another, they don't have any communication system in place, they go away. Uh, and so as architects, we can position ourselves as the the conduit for that communication.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's kind of what we do on projects, right? right? I mean, that's what we do when we design a building, is that, I mean, I'm not even allowed to stamp a set of drawings from a structural person, right? Like the architect can't even stamp. You need a structural engineer to come in and stamp those drawings. It, we know we don't. We don't know at all. and we. But what we do know is how to bring people together. And and that usually the architect on a project is the one who's helping to rally people around the project and organize it and all those sorts of things, including the client and other parts of it, in the community, et cetera. So that's always our role. And... If we could translate that out to other scenarios, right? There's other scenarios where those skill sets are very useful. Um, we might not know the you know, all the information like you said, but we might know where to get it, or we might know somebody who knows somebody where to get it, and we can bring those people into the fold and have a conversation. And I, I think seeing our practice, our everyday practice that we do, as having um, as being a model for other scenarios i think is a very it could be a very powerful tool for the profession in general yeah um, and and the individual firms in particular
0: i 100% agree i i i often talk about how architects don't have to design buildings to be architects right we are mm-hmm. we are trained problem solvers and so this this is the conversation we're having right now is how do we leverage our skills as architects to solve problems, whatever those problems are. Um, one of my long term goals is we actually I just started uh, the seeds of a new network where we're taking the community of small firms that we've built over the last 10 years and we're formalizing them into a network so we know who who's in the community. Right. So we can we know who, the, who they're who the, what their names are, what their firms are, what their specialties are, where they're located. Um, because once we have a network, then we can leverage that network to do lots of things. And one of those things can be problem solving, like what we're talking about here. And when I really think about you know, a long-term future of, of that network is imagine tens of thousands of architects networked, and we leverage that, that c- collective knowledge of architects solving problems, um, imagine the problems that we can solve. I mean, we could solve global problems because we are problem solvers. And when we take thousands of architects who want to solve problems together, um, it, would, it would be such an amazing opportunity for us to, to leverage our
1: community. Absolutely. And think about if you just, if you just expand upon that just slightly, just even a, an inch and say, you network those architects together And the networks that those architects are connected to get networked together. Right. Right. That there's a, there's an exponential because those the ability to solve those larger problems is through that mass connection, you know, interconnectivity that you can draw from and pull from the kind of, I think there's really, that's a really powerful idea you have. And I I agree with you completely um, that there's, there's ways in which, um, I think sometimes uh, architects get caught up that we do building. Right. We don't do buildings. I mean, we do buildings. You know, yeah. Sure, we do. we do, but we, we can do, do a lot more than that. Things. We do a lot of stuff, and and I think you're 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 phrasing it as um, as problem solving is exactly right. That's essentially what we do, and uh, we just it just happens to materialize into some built form. Um but it could materialize into other forms and and I, I think that's a powerful maybe notion and and lesson, I guess for for those who've been practicing <laughs> a long time and also to people who are coming in new into the profession. yeah um and in schools, I would say too, to be training students beyond um I mean, I love I love sexy looking stuff as much as the next guy. Don't get me wrong. But uh, but but not being trained in like completely formal languages, that these are broader skills that we're developing within educational environments and um, and training people to think outside the network of the object and into the network of the social sort of interconnectivity and other sorts of ideas of connectivity. So I don't know. If I'm rambling a little bit, but I think that that's I think that's super great
0: yeah rambling is usually good because it means that <laughs> you're, th- you're thinking that's good yes, uh, yeah you know, you're thinking about the possibilities <laughs> yeah um, I you know I you had mentioned earlier that that the wild is you that it's a one man organization um what can we do as a community to help you to help you grow?
1: well, I think it's about um I don't think it's about. Uh, I, I guess it's not about me growing. It's about um, participating in the conversation and and engaging with these issues that um, that are I I think are of paramount. I, I I don't know I don't know of any other important issue than climate right now. I'd say climate and equity are like the two and those go together. Yeah. Right. But those two things are you can't look at the world through any other lens. I, I can't anyway. I mean, you can, but I can't. And, um, you know, 50 years from now, that's what's on, that's what it, that's affecting us now. And it will affect us into the future and it will be exacerbated, not just environment, but equity issues too. And so I think seeing ourselves as agents of change agents of Or being process, being part of the process of change, is where that quote-unquote help comes out the most because it's 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 about um, the more voices from the profession there are, the more that people are engaged, the further we can move. And um, you know, my organization disappears, that's fine, right? If the thing something else takes over, that's what's important. What's important is that we're all moving together and that we're all pushing the issues um, and to solve these problems. And um, I think that's how we should think of it is outside of the, um, outside of the context of me and into the context of we, right. And that sounds trite maybe, to some but I think that's really true. And that ultimately what we do is a collaborative act and we should see that we're lifting up new, what I hope the best, I teach a lot too. So I've been teaching for almost 25 years too. And, and the reason I teach is not for any level of, you know, Hey, you're going to work on the issues I'm interested in. It's that you can lift up the next generation and you can lift up the next people who are way smarter than you and way more ability have more ability than you to solve problems that maybe you can't fix. Right. Or maybe that you caused. And so, um, I think that seeing each other in the profession in that light that we compete sometimes, you know, we compete for projects and we do all that kind of stuff because we all got to make a living and we all have to support our employees and, you know, do that. But, but ultimately it's about lifting everybody up and, and supporting each other. And if I see that you're trying to do something, well, I'm going to help you. Right. And if, and if you're doing it better than I'm doing it, then I'm going to, then I'm going to help you out because that'll go further than what I'm doing right now. I know mean, I just think that way, and so um, I, I guess my my largest, my biggest answer to your question, I'm sort of, but would be get involved, get going. You know, if these issues are important to you, engage, or whatever issues are important to you, engage. Um, because the role, the we're we're not, um, I guess, architecture as a profession is not um and we all you know we all get frustrated what do they want me to do just draft up this set <laughs> you know we 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 understand our value is more than drafting services but i think it's also our our um our role is also to uh is to i just lost my train of thought but <laughs> our role is to is to kind of um is to is to be a force for change in in the world and i i think that you know, I, I go back to the 60s and 70s, not because I was born in 1968 and you know that kind of thing, but uh, and to go back to some idealized state. But the architecture, architect as a Renaissance person, ideal. That's how we start with. We started right. Architecture was, it. and and thinking of our profession that way, and we're engaged in the real issues of the day. I think is, I don't know, just what inspires me, and I hope inspires others. I don't know if I even answered your question, but you did. Uh, you did, yeah.
0: and 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 I usually ask that you know that final question that everybody who's a listener knows. You know what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow. But I think that question, the answer that you just provided, is a great answer to that. Like, um, what can architects do today? I mean, a, a step up and lead, and and support one another. And you're talking to to the right community here because the Entree architect community, this community of small firm you know, entrepreneurially minded architects um, are extremely collaborative and sharing and and uh, supportive of one another. Um, We're actively trying to change that in the profession. Um, And so it's it's great to hear you say that because that's resonating with the people that we're talking to right now, Um, that if there is uh, a strength that you have, share it with others. And if you um, see someone with a strength, support them, and figure out how you can, can contribute to what they're doing because when we come together as a community, we all become better uh, and, the pres- and the profession grows, right? And, and with yeah. the profession growing, the world benefits from that. Uh, and so it's a, it's a great answer to that. Um, Greg, I appreciate you for coming by and talking about uh, the things that you're working on. His name is Greg Kochanowski. You can learn more about all the things that uh, Greg is talking about at thewild.org. It's the-wild.org. It's actually a really interesting website, lots of resources. There's information about the book there as well, The Wild. Uh, We'll have links to that website as well as the book on the show notes. Uh, If you wanna learn more about uh, GGA, Go to ggarch.com, ggarch.com, and you can learn more about the firm. Um, Greg, I appreciate you for what you're doing, first of all, uh, for all the work that you're doing and and getting the word out there about the things that you're passionate about. But I also appreciate you for coming by here and spending some time with me and, and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast.
1: Well, I'll just say right back at you, Mark. I really appreciate the invitation and to be able to have this conversation with you and that You know, you're really fostering these conversations about how we as architects can really better this world. But I think that there are, the world needs these venues. And I'm so thankful that you have this venue um, for, for us to talk to each other.
0: If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. This is our 10th year here at Entree Architect. we launched this thing back in 2012. It is 2022, if you haven't noticed. 10 years ago, we launched this podcast and it's grown to thousands of architects listening every week because you share this link. Entreearchitect.com slash podcast. Share a link to this episode with a friend. And thanks to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks, and NCARB. We could not do it without you. Thank you for your support. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today on this episode are available at the show notes for this episode, found at entrearchitect.com podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. If you haven't gone to Gable Media yet, you need to. Gablemedia.com is a is a place for you. It's built for you. It's curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You are the audience dedicated to building a better world. We built Gable Media for you. Go check it out at gablemedia.com. That's G A B L Media.com. And it's official November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Add those dates to your calendar and I will see you at the Entree Architect Community annual meeting, the first ever live and in person conference. For you, small firm architects, visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting. And I will see you in Austin. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening every week. I appreciate you coming back and sharing links to this episode. Go do that. This episode, go share it with a friend. Thanks for being here. Love, learn, and share what you know.